Well, I'm going to find Michael after this is over and give him a hug. That was, uh, appreciate that offer, Michael. Hey, um, it's really, really good to be here today. And uh, uh, a couple of things I wanted to talk about before I actually get started on today's Advent message. Uh, One of those is, um, as you know, our former children's pastor who went on to be a pastor in Oklahoma. Uh, She passed away, Becky Adams. And uh, the funeral was yesterday in Oklahoma City, and um, for those that went to that, I appreciate that. I know the family did, and uh, some of you were asking about ways to help. How can you help, and that you wanted to make a donation or that kind of a thing. If that's something that's on your heart, if you want to do that, you can do that. I would say uh, do it online or through the church app, and then we'll make sure that we, as a church, uh, can send that on to them, but it was, um, it was sudden and surprising, and a lot of you know that. We've had conversations, but uh, you know, the good thing about uh, this is that we know where Becky's at, and um, she's with Jesus now, and uh, we'll just continue to love the family while they're still here. Uh, second thing is the Christmas tree walk for everybody that came out to help yesterday with not only that, but uplift both on the same sun, or Saturday. Can you believe it? It was uh, an amazing time, and I, like I said, I was out of town. I wasn't able to be here for that. Uh, wish I was. But uh, I will be here the rest of the week and this weekend, Friday, Saturday. As you can see, when you uh, came up, the Christmas trees are all out over here, and some of them are already decorated. Um, I think there's like 60 trees. Um, Amanda or Michael could correct me on that, but I think there's around 60 trees. And they all need decorated before Friday. So if you would like to help with that during the week sometime, you have some time at lunch break or maybe after work, you want to come by and say, you know, I'll decorate a tree or two. Then uh, you can talk with uh, Amanda. She will uh, point you in the right direction on how to do that. And I know several of you have already said that. I appreciate that. But we need lots of help. And then on Friday and Saturday, we need help. So you know that the things that we do here, um, I always want to make sure that we use the things in our life as a way to, or in our church as a way to uh, point people to Jesus. And that's what this is. It's not just a bunch of pretty Christmas trees that are set up. Uh, They actually tell a story all the way from Jesus' birth to his death and resurrection. And so there's a point to it and people walk through and they'll get some um, literature on the church and how to receive Christ. And we'll have people here. That's where we all come in to help them. And if somebody has questions about that, you know, during Christmas time, Christmas and Easter, you guys all know, is uh, the statistics are out of this world that people are open and receptive to a conversation about Jesus. So we want to take every opportunity and use what our culture gives us and point people to Jesus. So I think it's uh, an amazing time. And if you want to come out and have some hot chocolate, bring your family and walk through the trees. It's, it's a good time. But anyway, uh, it's good to uh, be here and get started on all this. And it's that time of year, uh, Christmas time. And um, I just love it. And when we get into the Advent season, I just love that as well because we get to... Um, Really, Advent helps us prepare. I I know that sometimes it feels like it's helping us prepare for Christmas. Every week, Advent is like another countdown, like, oh, we only got three weeks left. Oh, you only got two weeks left. You got one week left. But uh, the countdown is not about Christmas presents. It's about Christmas Jesus. We don't want to forget about that. We're remembering that Jesus came the first time whenever he was, uh, came as a, a baby, as an infant, and in that way, we stand in solidarity with those who are waiting on their Messiah. But we also know that he promised to come again. And that's what we're waiting on now. We're waiting on the advent of his second coming. And someday uh, we're going to be able to see him. It's going to be awesome. Uh, he's going to 
It says he's going to come down out of the clouds and, you know, a trumpet's going to blast and we're going to see Jesus face to face. And uh, man, it's going to be an awesome time when that happens. And so I hope you, like me, are excited about his return. One day he's going to return and it's going to be amazing when that happens. Uh, starting out today, I want to ask you a question. How many of you remember the emergency broadcast system? Anybody remember the emergency broadcast system? Um, and and it, they had this thing, it would say like this. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. The broadcasters of your area in voluntary cooperation with the FCC and federal, state, and local authorities have developed this system to keep you informed in the event of an emergency. If this had been an actual emergency, you would have been instructed to tune to one of the broadcast stations in your area. You guys remember that? Some of you? Some of the uh, younger ones here, like, I don't think I've ever heard that before. Well, it, it was something that was like 60s, 70s, 80s. They actually have done away with the emergency broadcast system. I don't think my kids would understand that. I, I remember that um, as, a, as a young kid, if you got to stay up late, there was nothing to do after midnight. I mean, literally nothing to do. There was, you know, the, uh, the TV would go off and it would have like the little circles or the, the bars with the colors and it would just be, and it was like an emergency broadcast reminder every night at midnight. Now you have every video on demand, um, which is uh, amazing, but uh, that brings up a whole nother parenting thing. How do we keep our kids, you know, off of Netflix or whatever after midnight, but... Back in the day, my parents didn't have to worry about it because they were like, hey, everything's going to shut down at midnight, so whatever. Um, it's been years since the emergency broadcast system had its last alert. Uh, the new, they they've still have something in place. It's called the emergency alert system. You know, they have a, a very, like a, a think tank of people that are highly imaginative uh, naming these things. So from the emergency broadcast system to the emergency alert system. Um, for many years, though, the emergency broadcast system stood as a, uh, a thing that was ready to warn us in case, honestly, this is what started it, in case the Soviet Union launched a nuclear attack. Did you know that? The things that uh, we don't think about now. But uh, those things don't really bother us today. Because we're not worried about that. We're not in the same situation as we were in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So because of the implications of this, the government developed stringent safeguards to make sure that a genuine attack would never be confused with a false alarm or a simple test. So to ensure that that would never happen, what they would do was they would send sealed envelopes containing a set of updated authentication codes on a regular basis to every broadcast facility in the United States. Did you know that? Every broadcast facility in the United States would get a sealed envelope with authentication codes in there. So if it ever got hijacked, they would go, oh, wait a minute, we need to go to our sealed envelope and check. So they had all these things in place, right? Despite these safeguards, the unthinkable happened at 9.33 a.m. on February 20th, 1971, which was before I was born. Just throw that out there. <clears throat> the emergency, my kids will say, hey, Dad, you were born in the 1900s. Yeah, that's true, I was. The emergency broadcast system was inadvertently activated. I don't know if any of you that were here can remember that. My dad might. It was inadvertently activated. So the signal for a real nuclear attack was mistakenly given. Can you believe it? So wire services picked up this bulletin and distributed those chilling words to all the broadcast systems. And it said, this is not a test. <laughs> 
Oh, no. So, you know, right now, even now, you'll, um, the, you will hear something like, this is a test. This is only a test if this had been an actual emergency. Well, this said, this is not a test. So how do you think people responded to this situation? It's very disturbing that a vast majority of the United States radio stations that received this bulletin either ignored it or thought, surely this is a mistake. Like it just didn't work. And even when a second message was sent out with the authentication code, the, uh, signifying that this was not a test, but it was in fact an authentic emergency, still broadcasters ignored it. Across the entire United States, only one broadcast station, a television station in Chicago, shut down as required by law. So obviously, this false alarm really pointed out some problems with this system. Uh, all of that story to tell you that I imagine John the Baptist to be Jesus' time emergency broadcast system. That's kind of how John the Baptist was. He, he was assigned the task by God of alerting the people of Israel that Jesus is coming and that without Christ, the world is a wilderness. Like we think of John the Baptist as the voice of somebody crying in the wilderness. So how appropriate that the second Sunday of Advent, we're reminded of John the Baptist. Without Christ, he would tell people, the world is a wilderness. Without Christ, the world is a prisoner that has been enslaved by sin. Without Christ, the world is cold and dark and meaningless. But he came to tell them, with Christ. You know, I am... Um, I'm working on, I'm in school and working on some things. And uh, I was, you know, it's just really a strange thing to go from being a, a pastor and, and writing sermons or messages every week. Because, like, I have this way and, you know, you tell stories and you kind of talk about scripture and you weave things into that. But in, on the school side, they want you to be kind of very rigid and, and academic. And so... In, in my papers I write, I have, I, I'm not very academic in my writing, probably because of habit. But in, in one of the most recent ones I wrote, and here's the point. Without God, it, it's, it's a meaningless world. Without God, we are hopeless. Without God, there is nothing to look forward to. I heard somebody say two of the most hope-filled words in Scripture. And this is what I put in my paper. I feel like I'm preaching to my professor. Some of the most hope-filled words in Scripture are, but God. Without God, we're headed down the wrong way. There was no hope. There is no future. But God, who is rich in his mercy. But God, who is full of grace. But God, who loves us with every fiber of his being but God. And I imagine that John the Baptist is that for the people of his time. You guys are headed the wrong way, but God has a plan. Luke chapter 3 is our scripture today. As I get into this, uh, remind you that the notes can be found in the church's app, which we are in the middle of redesigning and rebuilding. I um, 
I appreciate Michael Cole is taking a, a big role in that. Bruno spent some time this week. So, you know, look on the app sometime. It's got some good stuff on there. But uh, today the notes are going to be in there in the Sunday um, service part of it. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria, and Traconitus, man, we should really take some clues about naming our kids from this, <laughs> and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, not to be confused with Texas, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, and the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert, which is John the Baptist. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. This is what he said. To the, okay. Um, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. See, John's message is a word of warning, but ultimately it's a word of hope. He comes in and he gives a warning of repent. And we know the word repent means to turn your back on a former thought, like to exchange your former thought for a different thought. And, and that's what he was saying, like repent your old ways, put your old ways behind you and turn there's something new coming. Repent, which is a warning, but with hope because our salvation is at hand. You can imagine the words that they had been waiting on for so many years and decades and centuries for their Messiah. And here's John saying, repent, our salvation is at hand. You see, John's task was to prepare the world for the coming of the Christ. Today we read these words with joy as we prepare our hearts for the Christmas season and all that it means for our faith. And, and John's message was very simple, and this is the heart of his message. The Messiah is coming. He says in another place, one is coming after me who was before me, whose sandals I am not worthy to latch. Somebody I, I'm not even worthy to stoop down, depends on the version you read, and, and untie his sandals. I should be quick to point out that when life gets tough, People look for a leader, someone who can lead them out of the darkness, someone who can bring them into the light. We all know the story. In times of darkness, a leader will emerge. Sometimes that leader may not be the right leader. Sometimes they may not be the leader that anybody expected, but it is in those moments that leaders are born. I can still remember September 11th, 2001. That morning, I don't know how many of you who were alive then can remember that morning. I can remember that morning and, and I woke up and the first plane had already flown into the, the first tower. And then as I was watching TV, I saw the second plane fly in the news that day. Nobody knew exactly what was happening right away, but it soon became clear that it had been attacked. And I also remember the political turmoil around that time around the president, George W. Bush. You guys probably remember that because of all the way he was elected and, and was it legitimate and like all these questions. 
And so a lot of the country, as happens today with political divide, was torn. And a bunch of people did not want him to be their leader. But I can remember after that, and he went down there, and you guys have seen that it's become famous since then, but um, this guy who half the country at least did not want him to lead them, I remember he stood up and he gave this speech. I don't even remember everything he said, but it was after that speech that he rose and became a leader and the country united. And, and it wasn't all because of him, but I'm saying it was because of what was going on and, and the, the um, turmoil that we were in. And everybody was looking for a leader. And if you thought he was right or you thought he was wrong or if he should or shouldn't have been the leader, it doesn't matter because in that moment, he stood up and people rallied around, not only him, but the country. And it's in moments when times get tough that people are looking for a leader. And you can remember that in your life because in your life when people are around you and, and somebody today, right now, you know somebody who's going through a hard time. You know somebody who's struggling. You know somebody at work or that you've grown to have a relationship at the restaurant or at the grocery store, somebody that you know is going through a tough time and they're looking for a leader. They're looking for somebody to lead them to a place of hope. And that's where you come in because you have the hope. Listen, I know you're struggling and I know things look bleak and I know your job is hard and I know your life is hard, but God, but God is at work redeeming you in this very moment, if you will just turn towards him. It was during this time that Israel was under Rome's hand. Like it, it, was, it was a struggle. And if you haven't done it, go through and read the Old Testament and see their, from Abraham to their rise to power and the most prominent nation in all of the world. And then their fall to where eventually they have no country and they're being ruled by Rome. They're looking for a deliverer. And here comes John the Baptist. He's announcing the coming of the Messiah. When life gets tough, we begin to look for somebody to deliver us. I hope today you're looking to Jesus and that you point other people to Jesus too. I don't know if many of you have heard of there's a, a, the movie called uh, The Bridge Over the River Kwai, 1957 movie. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting movie. It's a movie of a group of, of British prisoners of war during World War II who were held by the Japanese in northern Burma. And it's a story of their struggle and the hardships that they, fa that they faced. Ernest Gordon, who was at one time chaplain at the uh, Yale University, he wrote a book called Through the River of the Kwai. And he talked about his experience as a prisoner of war in this camp and its utter degradation and its desolation. And he says that as a group of soldiers, when they realized that they were going to be there for a while, they began to have Bible studies and they began to pray diligently that they would be delivered from their circumstance. A whole lot like Israel was praying for deliverance from Rome. He said at first their prayers were shallow and superficial and they were upset with God and they, they really railed against God for letting them be in that situation. But as time went on, something began to happen. Their railing against God disappeared and they began to move to a 
really a more mature faith. They began to pray about their relationships with each other. No longer was it why God, which we have all prayed. It began to be, how should we act, God? Gordon said the most spiritual moment of that entire time he was there happened at Christmas, 1944. Out of deference to the holiday, their captors were not given work detail that day, and they were given a little bit more food. And he said as they moved around that prison yard, they sensed that somehow things were different on this Christmas day. In one of the barracks, which weren't barracks really at all, it was just a thatched hut with a dirt floor, no sides. That's where the men slept. In the barracks, one soldier began to sing a Christmas carol. And as he sang that Christmas carol, it echoed all across the infirmary where men were dying. Then all around the camp, one by one, they all began to sing in on that song. And those who were able to, to walk and move around, they came to the parade field and, and they gathered together in a great circle. And Gordon says that God touched them mightily on that day. He said, now remember, chaplain at Yale University, somebody who is very familiar with church and religion, he said this was the most sacred event that he had ever been a part of and it had nothing to do with preaching. It had nothing to do with church paraphernalia. It was just a group of men united in their common misery, singing of God being with them and God's sovereignty. And he said on that day, they were touched by God. In a sense, these soldiers experienced the coming of the Messiah to their prisoner of war camp. They experienced a, a momentary shining of light into their darkness. It's interesting the way Jesus came because the Jews of the time were expecting their Messiah to come and be a conqueror. They thought he was going to come, put together an army, and deliver them from Rome and the rest of the world. But Jesus didn't come as a physical conqueror. He came as a spiritual conqueror. So a lot of times we're looking for a physical something from him, but he wants to touch us in a spiritual way. And maybe you've experienced that sometime when you've had a difficult time in your life and you've gotten to the point where you're going to give up, but but suddenly you felt a touch of God in the same way that these, ex these soldiers experienced God in that prisoner of war camp. Everything seemed destined for failure. Everything seemed bad. Everything seemed but God. But God in his grace. But God in all of the mercy he has for us rose up and touched you. You know, Christmas, and we know this, it's not about all the glitz and the glamour of expensive gifts. It's about people in all kinds of circumstances experiencing Jesus Christ. And that's why we, use, we have Christmas tree walk. To usher people into a place where they can experience God. You know, it's, it's not about Christmas trees. We understand that. It's not about gifts. Of course, I did get the uh, warning a couple of days ago. 
Have you bought any of my gifts yet? No. If you don't, I'm going to just buy my own gifts. <laughs> but you know it's not about gifts. Oh, but I'm going to get some. <laughs> we understand that. But we need to point people to Jesus. All right. His second message was this. Prepare the way. And he's speaking the words of Isaiah. The voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. How do you prepare for the coming of the Messiah? How should you prepare for that? Well, he says the way we prepare is by repenting. He calls it a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And repentance is an interesting word, and we've talked about it. I've talked about it many times. But, you know, we have in our minds this idea that repenting is, is to confess all of the things we've done wrong. Well, that's not necessarily true. Maybe as part of our repentance, we do confess what is wrong, but it is turning our backs on the way we used to live. It's, it's exchanging a former thought for a new thought. We were going one direction. He calls us to repentance, so we turn our backs on the wrong direction and we head the right way. It's to repent. And, and he talks about how we do this. How do we prepare? He says the man with two tunics. If you read uh, in the same chapter, verse 7, the man with two tunics should share with the one who has none. The one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors, don't take more tax than you should. Soldiers, don't extort money. Don't falsely accuse people. People need to prepare their hearts to live and receive the Messiah through repentance. You see, his kingdom was not one of flesh. How do we prepare? We don't go gather an army. We don't go get a bunch of swords and weapons. He comes in and he says, this is how you prepare. It's a spiritual preparation. It's not a physical preparation. Prepare spiritually. The law of grace is about to be ushered in. Imagine they were living under the law of the Old Testament. 613 rules about how to be holy and righteous. All that's about to change. Jesus is about to bring all of that down and say, it's all about this. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He says all of the law, all those 613, they're summed up in those two things. Of course, Jesus comes later and says, I'm going to give you a new command. I've talked about this a lot. I'm going to give you a new command. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Like it's just a whole new world. It's this law of grace, undeserved love and mercy that he has for us. And that's the new law. And he expects us to have that for others. You know, that's really one of the hardest things to teach people, how to have grace for each other. Because we're all so ready for justice and we want to see reparation and we want to see issues taken care of and we want to see, but we've got to have grace for each other. He's called us to love one another. By this, people will know that you belong to me. I'm paraphrasing. That's what Jesus said. There's a story of a lady who 
is uh, her son is a state trooper. Somebody was talking to her one day about her son and some of his stories, and she said one day her son was out on the road and doing what they do, issuing citations. So he pulled this, this lady over, and um, he handed her her ticket after everything was over, and she says, well, don't you give warnings? Which probably all of you have asked, or I usually try to say before, hey, can I have a warning for this? Is that okay? Don't you give warnings, she asked, after he handed her the ticket, and he says, oh, yes, ma'am. They're all up and down the highway. They say speed limit 55. <laughs> That's your warning. <laughs> People have a tendency to disregard warning signs. Have you noticed that? They just disregard warning signs. It's like uh, we were driving home yesterday. And we were joking in, in Sunday school this morning and last night. You know, the, is it Progressive that has the commercials? I can't remember. The com that says, like, don't become your parents. And the guy's walking around Home Depot and they're, hey, this is how you do this, this is how you do this. We were for sure, Sarisa and I, our parents driving home because everybody's driving crazy. And we're like, oh, look at those people. <laughs> like, oh, look how good we're driving. And look at. But it's crazy, the warning signs. People ignore those and, and we're coming and, and you can see clearly. Two miles down the road, the sign says, the lane narrows into one. One mile down the road, the lane narrows to one. The orange cones are beginning to push you over. And still, I've been in the correct lane for two miles and you, you are not getting in front of me. <laughs> and then, have you ever been convicted about that? And then I'm like, oh, but the grace of God. Okay, I'll let you over. They don't, have, they don't pay attention to the warning signs. You guys have all done it. Like, oh, did you not see the yield? No, sir, you cannot have this spot here because you did not yield. We disregard warning signs. Roger Sear is the national director of Operation Lifesaver. It's an operation in Canada. It's a, it's a nonprofit that is, they're trying to reduce, this is their, their cause, to reduce accidents between cars and trains. Seems pretty self-evident, right? But what happens is this. They've done research, and uh, he, Sear puts most of the blame of the fatalities of drivers who are risk takers. And, and they've done studies that show that when a bell begins to go off, something in a person's mind is triggered. This is no joke, studies show. And they have a desire to accelerate, not slow down. Did you know that? Most people, when they hear the bells, it's like Pavlov's dog, like, oh, time to speed up so I can beat the train. He said that, in fact, 43% um, of accidents involving Trains and cars, 43% are at places that are equipped with flashing lights and gates. Because what happens is people see the lights, they hear the, the, the noises, and they try to beat it. They even try to, they'll drive around the gate or try to go under it. Like it, it happens. They're trying to beat it. And usually with catastrophic consequence. They take the risk, thinking they can beat the train. But that collision, you will not win if you're in an automobile. It's just not going to happen. So next time you hear the, the bells, because we've got trains all over, right? And they're annoying. But don't try to beat it. <laughs> the train whistle and the bells at the, at the, in, the, in the gate are not to be um, messed with. Leave them alone. It's amazing how deaf people are to warning signs. 
John warned the people of Israel that the Messiah was coming. He, he wanted the people to repent and be baptized. He wanted them to experience the richness of joy that you and I experience, that he was coming into. He wanted them to understand who the Messiah was. God wants to break into our lives and fill us with his love. He didn't come to help them gather an army and defeat the Romans. He came to break into their lives and fill them with love and usher in a new kingdom. He wanted it to be, he's at work restoring. We just got through talking about this. He is at work redeeming and restoring this earth and you and me to what he created us to be. That's what he's doing. And one day we'll, in heaven, we'll all be together and it'll be like that. But until then, we bring it with us everywhere we go filled with his love. It's like a little girl named Stephanie who was orphaned at birth. Her, her parents both died when she was very young. She didn't have any relatives, so she went into the foster care system. She ended up with a, a family called the Weavers. And Mrs. Weaver found Stephanie to be really a little difficult, not in her behavior, but she was just sullen and she was withdrawn and she wasn't very social or interactive. And so she asked to see her records and the first foster family wrote, Stephanie is a quiet and shy girl. And the second one wrote, she obeys, but she doesn't participate in the family. Mrs. Weaver, she, because it was a struggle, she doubted that she would be with them very long and she decided they would keep her through the Christmas season and uh, then afterwards, asked the social worker if they could place her with a family maybe better suited. At Christmas, they're all passing out gifts, and the weavers uh, give Stephanie her gift. All the gifts are passed out, and Stephanie says, hold on, I have a gift for you. And she gave Mrs. Weaver a crumpled up brown bag that had a, a kind of a childish drawing of the Christmas uh, scene on it. And inside was a rhinestone necklace with a couple of the uh, stones missing and, and a bottle of perfume that was half gone. And, but she thought, oh, it's so neat that she would think of me. So she took the rhinestone necklace and she put it around her neck and she got the perfume and she put some behind her ears. And Stephanie looked at her and she says, oh, you look so pretty in that necklace, just like my mom used to. And you smell a lot like her, too, with her perfume on. Stephanie had given her the last thing of her mom's that she had, which was this old necklace and this half-used bottle of perfume. <laughs> so the Weavers decided to keep her, and actually a year later they adopted her because she did end up with the family. And, and, and that's what Jesus does for us. He's seeking to enter our world, to become a part of us, to help us, to move on. That's what happens through repentance. When we've repented and been baptized, we're going to be ready for God's salvation. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. <coughs> That's what the Christmas story is all about. God enters the manger in Bethlehem in order to save God's people from their sins. When we receive that grace, when we receive that peace, when we receive that love, we're empowered to 
enter other people's lives. In Kansas City, there's a tradition simply known, and you probably have heard of it, called the Secret Santa. And every Christmas, there's a man there who finds random people at the gas station, at the grocery store, and he, he gives them in an envelope a crisp, brand new $100 bill. He'll just walk up and randomly he's handing people this $100 bill. A few years ago, somebody tracked down this secret Santa and, and they were able to find him. They interviewed him and, and they asked why he did this. So he told of a story. He said, I know I'm a successful businessman now. I haven't always been. Back in uh, the 70s, I was an out-of-work salesman and I hadn't eaten for days. I got so hungry, I went into a restaurant. And I just didn't care. I was just going to eat the food and not pay for it. That was my plan. When he came in, the owner had already sized him up, kind of knew. The bill came and he starts reaching in his pockets and he's, oh man, I forgot my wallet. The owner comes over, steps, and he says, hey, what's this I found on the, oh, must be your $20 bill. Gave him the $20 bill and that, that who we know as the secret Santa today in Kansas City, said he had never been shown kindness like that, but he never forgot that kindness. So when he became successful, he began to do what he does now and give to others as someone once gave to him. You know, as we reflect on this season of Advent, remember that Christ came into our world to give us his everything. And it's our job to show grace for others, to lead them to who Jesus is and introduce them to the Messiah. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, so grateful for all that you've done for us, for who you are to us. This morning, God, we're gonna take communion here in just a few moments. I pray that you would be with us as we do this together, remembering that Jesus, you entered our world and John heralded the way and gave us the warning to repent with the hope and promise of entering your kingdom. Thank you for that gift. May we always remember it, especially during this Advent season. In your name we pray. Amen.